Good morning, ladies, and thank you for joining us if you're joining on the podcast. This week, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9, 1 to 50. Luke has been giving us hints of Jesus's identity throughout his gospel. In chapter 9, Luke will give us a clear picture of who Jesus is. You've likely heard people talk about Jesus. People will say things like he was a great teacher, a philosopher, a prophet, a healer, a miracle worker, a good man, a friend. And while this might be accurate, they miss the point of who Jesus really is, and they neglect to acknowledge his true identity. He is so much more. We want to know Jesus, and to do so, we need to look to him and to his word. Who does he say he is? Before we dig in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear who Jesus is. Will you, by your word, give us a right understanding of your Son? I pray that this teaching would be a reflection of your thoughts, not mine. And if I get anything wrong, that it would fall away. It would be your thoughts and your words that stick and change our hearts. By your Spirit, help us to know Christ. Help us to have faith where there was once unbelief. Amen. In chapter 9, Jesus' Galilean ministry is coming to an end. Jesus knows that his time in Galilee is almost up, and so at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles on their first mission. Jesus does this because it was important to spread the message of the kingdom and to give his disciples ministry experience. Up to this point, these disciples have been working alongside Jesus. They've been his disciples, his students. Now they are his apostles. They have been commissioned and assigned by Jesus' authority. They're being sent out to the region of Galilee as his ambassadors. They're sent to preach Jesus' message. They're being sent with a particular purpose, and it's twofold, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. Jesus sends them out with power and authority. Jesus has power and authority over the spiritual realm, and through his power and authority, he has the ability to heal. He grants the disciples his power and authority over all demons and the power to cure diseases. Jesus' ministry is concerned with the people's physical and spiritual needs, their bodies and their souls. Jesus gives the apostles clear instructions to take nothing for their journey. No bag, no food, no money, no change of clothes. He is more concerned that they get on their way and concentrate on the task at hand, not spend time and effort preparing for the journey. There is a haste and urgency for this work to get done. So they were to go. They are to rely and depend on God, to trust him to supply even their basic needs. They are to travel light, be ready, and on the move. They will see their needs met by the hospitality of God's children. Once they find a household willing to receive them, they are to stay there until the work is done. They aren't to go door-to-door to collect money or house-to-house looking for a better menu or comfier beds. They are to stay and minister where they have been welcomed. I found Jesus' instructions to them a bit baffling and quite convicting. Thinking of the last time I went on a trip, I had to use a bigger suitcase because I thought my Karen was too small. Mm-hmm. I wanted to pack extra sweaters in case the weather was unpredictable. I'm not known for traveling light. This made me think... Am I living in a way that if I was called to go on mission to share Christ's message, would I be ready? Or am I too weighed down, tethered to my stuff, and my own agenda? Am I willing to open my home to provide hospitality to those who live on mission to share Jesus' message? 
or am I too busy with other commitments? I think these are good questions to ask ourselves. When the time comes and Jesus asks us to go, are we living in a way that we would be ready? Jesus gives the apostles a warning for the households that do not receive them. They are to shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against them. What? What does that mean? Is anyone else surprised they don't ask Jesus, what do you mean? Shaking off the dust from your feet was an idiom of the time the apostles would have been familiar with. It refers back to the book of Exodus when Moses met God in the form of the burning bush. God instructed Moses to remove his sandals because Moses was standing on holy ground. Exodus 4, 5. Nothing unclean was to be brought on holy land. The Israelites, when they would travel to pagan lands, would shake off the dust from the lands they had visited to avoid soiling the holy land they returned to. This is significant because Jesus sent his apostles to Jewish towns. These households would be on holy land. The action of shaking off the dust from their feet is an indictment against the household. It is declaring the Jews who reject God's kingdom are no better than the Gentiles and they do not belong to the people of God. This is a gesture pointing out the household's unbelief and a reference to God's coming judgment. That those who reject the kingdom will be cut off from his family. This is a warning to us as well. Those who reject Jesus' message of God's kingdom will not be received by God and will face his judgment. The only way to the Father is through the Son. Herod, the Tetrarch, the ruler of the time, has gotten wind of Jesus' falling, and he wants to know who Jesus is. Herod's name should be familiar to us. In Luke 3, we learn that John the Baptist disapproved of Herod's immorality and spoke up out publicly against his evil actions, landing John in prison by Herod's orders. Now Herod wants to know, who is Jesus? He's heard a variety of reports. Some say Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others say he's the appearance of Elijah, while others say he's one of the old prophets who has been raised. People struggled to understand who Jesus is. Herod is concerned about who this man is because he himself had had John beheaded. He witnessed John's death. He knows he has acted against God. John himself died at his hand for speaking out against his sin. Now his conscience is troubling him, and he wants to see Jesus to confirm who this man is. Our narrative continues with the return of the apostles from their mission. They are like kids coming back from a week at camp, filled with stories to share with Jesus. They want to tell him all about where they went, who they met, what they did, how they used his delegated power and authority. So Jesus takes them away to a quiet place for a time of rest, to relax and find refreshment after their journey. When the crowds find out, they follow Jesus. Instead of Jesus being annoyed and frustrated that their time of rest and fellowship is disrupted, he welcomes the crowds and continues his ministry work, preaching the kingdom of God and healing those in need. It was a long, full day, and the apostles were starting to get tired and hungry, and they were concerned for the crowd's needs. So they went to Jesus and asked him to send the crowds away so that people could find somewhere to sleep and eat because there was nothing where they were where they were. It was a desolate place. It was isolated and away from the villages where lodging and supplies could be found. The apostles were trying to tell Jesus what to do. Instead, Jesus instructs the apostles to feed the crowds. The apostles have a problem. They only have five loaves and two fish that is not going to feed the crowd of 5,000 men before them. They could go and buy food, but that would be impossible. The cost was too great. They did not have the money to do that. 
And even if they did, there was nowhere to get supplies. Remember, they are in an isolated, desolate place with nothing around. Jesus gives the apostles clear instructions to have the crowds sit down in groups of 50. The apostles did not know why, but they obeyed Jesus and organized the crowds. Jesus takes the loaves of bread and the fish. He looks to, up to heaven, saying a blessing over the meager portion in his hands. He breaks the loaves and passes them to the disciples to distribute to the crowds. Everyone ate and they were satisfied. Jesus fed the people to satisfaction. They were filled. Jesus gave beyond their needs. There were leftovers. Jesus blesses abundantly and provides for our needs. This miracle is the only miracle apart from the resurrection that is contained in all four gospels. This miracle points to Jesus having God's ability to provide and sustain. God in Christ can fulfill any need. Jesus is the bread of life. He feeds us when we come to him. He can supply all our needs, even when it seems impossible. Jesus is alone with the disciples again. He spends some time praying. Then he asks them, who do the crowd say that I am? They answer him, John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet of old who has risen. But Jesus is more concerned about who the disciples say he is. Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ means the Messiah, the deliverer the people of God had been waiting for. Jesus commands his disciples to tell no one. This is true. Jesus is the Messiah. But for this news to be widespread would lead to a great misunderstanding due to the Jewish nationalistic expectations. The people are expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow the oppressing rulers. This would make Jesus' ministry of sharing the kingdom of God more difficult as the people would try to make him fit into a role of political and military leader against the Roman rulers that they desire. This is not what Jesus has come to do. The disciples have much to learn about what kind of Messiah Jesus is. For the first time, Jesus reveals God's plan for him. Jesus, the Messiah, will suffer. He will be rejected by the religious leaders. He will be killed and he will be raised to life by God. Jesus teaches the cost of following him and what it means to be a disciple of Christ. A disciple will need to deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Jesus. Denying himself means giving up personal control of one's life. Bearing one's cross is a Jewish saying the disciples would have known. It meant enduring the worst that the world could throw at you. So to take up their cross daily means to make a commitment to Christ that can lead to rejection and possibly even death. It is identifying with his humiliation. It is not fleeing from suffering involved with Christianity. Baptism is one way followers reenact this identification by being buried and raised to life with Christ. Follow me meant joining Jesus's ministry and traveling with him, doing his work his way. He goes on to explain that whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever lives a life serving self focused on this present world will not find eternal life with God. They will not know the gift of salvation. By saving themselves, they're rejecting the way of salvation. Whoever gives up a self-centered life in rebellion against God for the sake of Christ and the gospel will find everlasting life in God's kingdom. They will be saved. Jesus warns, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose their soul? A future secure and eternal communion with God is far more valuable than even the whole world could offer. Gaining the world comes at a steep cost, your soul. 
At Jesus' second coming, when he returns in all his glory, Jesus will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him and his words. Anyone who denies Jesus and his teachings will be denied by Jesus. We cannot separate Jesus from his words. If we reject his teachings, we reject him. Those who deny Jesus can expect to hear the words, I never knew you. We have a choice. We can deny Christ and follow self, or we can deny ourselves and follow Christ. We cannot follow Christ and serve ourselves. Jesus then predicts that a few of his disciples will have the opportunity to witness God's kingdom while they're still alive. Eight days later, Jesus went up the mountain with John, Peter, and James to pray. This has been Jesus' pattern throughout the book of Luke. Prior to something important happening, he takes time to pray. As Jesus was praying, his face changed. His clothing became dazzling white. Think of the brightness of a flash of lightning. It's a pure white without defect or blemish. Divine glory. The transfiguration, the change his appearance, was not an outward light shining on him. This illumination came from within him, and it radiated out of him. Jesus shines. It's similar to when Moses comes down Mount Sinai after meeting with God to receive the Ten Commandments, and his face radiated because he had been talking with God. Exodus 34, 29. Jesus' whole being is transformed, not just his face. This moment is giving us a glimpse of Jesus' future glory when he will return at the second coming. Jesus' transfiguration affirms the reality that Jesus truly is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. Why are Moses and Elijah there? Moses represents the law as the primary Old Testament lawgiver, and Elijah represents the prophets. Their presence revealed that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and of the Old Testament prophecy. He is the greater Moses who will deliver the new Israel from far worse bondage, and he is greater than Elijah as he fulfills all the Old Testament prophecy. Together, Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus about his departure and what he will accomplish in Jerusalem. His future death, resurrection, and ascension will all occur in Jerusalem. Only the book of Luke tells us the subject of Jesus' conversation with his heavenly visitors, his departure, his death. R.C. Sproul, in his book, An Exponential expositional commentary on the book of Luke, the son of man came to seek and save the lost, claims that Moses and Elijah are sent by God to comfort and encourage Jesus before his journey to Jerusalem. This is a display of the father's care for his son. The visitor's presence disproved the rumors that Jesus is a prophet raised from the dead. While Jesus was praying, the disciples had fallen into a deep sleep. They are awoken by a shining light. As they wipe the sleep from their eyes, they see Jesus' glory and that he has heavenly visitors, Moses and Elijah, standing with him. It was a sight for the disciples to behold. This must have been an encouragement to them after receiving Jesus' teaching about cross-bearing. When Moses and Elijah are leaving, Peter tells Jesus that he's so glad that he and the disciples are there because they can now erect three tents for them, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter wanted to retain the experience by making them boost, but Peter does not understand what he's seeing, and he is overwhelmed by the experience. As Peter was sharing this idea, a cloud came and overshadowed them. In the Old Testament, a cloud has been associated with the presence of God, Exodus 40, 34. The cloud of Yahweh would settle over the tabernacle, indicating his presence. 
The disciples were afraid as they entered the cloud. It's not clear who entered the cloud, but because the disciples hear the voice coming out of the cloud, it's likely that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah entered the cloud. This terrifies the disciples. The voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. God chose and anointed Jesus for his ministry. He is an anointed human being and the divine son. He is anointed and appointed by God. This clearly differentiates Jesus from Moses and Elijah. God instructs the disciples and us to listen to him. This means to give attention to Jesus' teaching above all else. He is above the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. His teaching supersede and rightly interpret the Old Testament for the new age of the kingdom of God and the new covenant. Jesus is not equal to Moses and Elijah. He is far greater. All the Old Testament pointed to him. After God speaks, Jesus is found alone. His visitors are gone. The disciples keep silent and tell no one about what they witnessed. This is a time for them to witness and behold, to listen and watch. After Pentecost, they'll share all that they had seen. Leon Morris, in his commentary on the book of Luke, states, The combination of glory and the conversation about the death of Christ will be a way of teaching the disciples that true glory and the cross are not incompatible. The path to glory is through suffering. Sisters, as we share in Jesus' suffering, we will get to share in his glory. The following day, when Jesus and his disciples had come down from the mountain, he is met by another crowd. A man from the crowd cries out, begging Jesus to look at his only son, who is suffering with an unclean spirit. The spirit causes the son to have seizures, convulsions, foaming out the mouth, and shatters the son. The spirit will hardly leave the son. It is a continuous torment to him. The man wants Jesus to look at his son, to see his son's pain, to see his suffering, and respond with compassion, mercy, and healing. The man explains that he begged the disciples to cast the spirit out, but they could not. So now he is turning to Jesus for help. Jesus responds with a word to the crowd. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? He is addressing all the people who are present that had failed to show enough faith for the boy to be healed. Jesus is concerned about their lack of faith. Even the disciples acted without faith. They had been granted Jesus' power and authority to cast out demons, and yet they could not do it. They are participating in the perversion of their generation. The word twisted is often translated as perversion in other Bible translations, meaning distortion and crooked. Their culture is twisted because it is a faithless culture. Much like our own culture, it values things that God abhors and what God loves, the culture despises. When we fail to have faith and trust God, our priorities become twisted and our views become distorted. People had witnessed Jesus cast out demons and heal the sick. Instead of recognizing these miracles as signs of God's presence and his demand for repentance, they were seeing them as wonders. Jesus is frustrated with the twisted generation. Are they even hearing him? Despite the faithlessness present, Jesus' concern for people is once again displayed, and he acts. Jesus has the man bring him his son. As the son approaches Jesus, the demon tries to overcome him one last time, convulsing him and throwing him to the floor. Jesus rebukes the demon, demonstrating yet again his authority over the spiritual realm, his power over the forces of hell, and heals the boy. 
he returns the boy to his father. All who witnessed this miracle were astonished by the majesty of God. They marveled at everything he was doing. They have witnessed the work of God. They are beginning to see Jesus for who he is and declaring what Jesus has done, God has done. They are marveling at God through what Jesus has accomplished. Jesus brought glory not to himself, but to God. Ladies, there are some important things to note here. One, that spiritual forces do exist. The presence of evil is real. We are in a spiritual battle, yet we do not need to fear through the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus' power and authority to cast out evil. By Jesus' Holy Spirit, we can discern what is evil. He grants us power to turn from it and stand for what is good. We need to be on guard for the lies of the enemy, especially that come in the ways of the twisted views of our culture. We are being bombarded constantly with messaging that goes against Christ and his ways. Let us be women who turn to Christ, who value the truth, and bring the lies of the prince of the power of the air under his authority. Let us not be led astray. While the crowds are marveling at what Jesus was doing, Jesus turns the disciples' attention to God's plans for Jesus, the passion. For a second time, Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. He asks them to pay close attention to what he is saying. Let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The disciples don't understand what Jesus is telling them. The scripture specifically states that what Jesus said is concealed to them. It is hidden. The disciples are unable to grasp what this means. They don't understand. Even though they don't understand, no one asks Jesus to clarify because they are afraid. The ESV Bible study Bible states that this was probably because the disciples could comprehend enough of what Jesus was saying that they did not want to know more. Sometimes, out of fear, we are content to treat things as mysterious that God has made quite clear in his word. The expectation of the Messiah was that he would come as a conquering king, not as a suffering servant. It would have been difficult for the disciples to understand the truth that Jesus being the Messiah meant that he would be led to his death. After this solemn conversation with Jesus, an argument breaks out amongst the disciples about which one of them is the greatest. They are arguing about which one of them has the greatest authority, who deserves the best treatment, who is the most valuable, who is the most favored by God. This is wrong, is rooted in their pride. They're talking about their pride of place. Jesus had just spoken to them about his sacrificial death for sinners, and they've missed the point. It demonstrates that they're not in step with Jesus' spirit. The disciples are thinking of themselves. Jesus is thinking of others. Pride keeps us from understanding Jesus and his teachings. Jesus sees the disciples' heart and knows their motives. He knows the reasoning of their hearts, so he rebukes them by putting a little child by his side and telling them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. The child represents the vulnerable, the needy, the helpless, the unimportant. Love for Christ is demonstrated in loving service to the lowly. To receive the child is to receive Jesus, and to receive Jesus is to receive the Father. Jesus is teaching the disciples that the person who is least is the one who is great. This is another reversal. Greatness is not earthly greatness, but that in the kingdom is the lowly who is great. God's kingdom is made up of lowly people who in their need place their trust in Christ. And when they receive Christ, they receive the Father. Think of a small needy child who trusts their parents 
because they are dependent on them for all their needs. Jesus wants the disciples to recognize that to be great is to receive the one who is in need in Jesus' name and to trust God the Father through Christ. The one who is most trusting is the one who is great. Jesus says, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus does not say greatest because there is no need for comparison in the kingdom. True greatness is lowly service in humility, trusting and depending on Jesus. Ladies, let's not allow ourselves to fall into the comparison trap, looking at what other people are doing. Let's look to Jesus, trust him, and serve him with humility, thinking not of ourselves, but of others. John answers Jesus by telling him that they saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, so they tried to stop him because he does not follow with the disciples. This seems like a curious response after the argument Jesus just spoke into. It makes me think of my own kids when I'm disciplining the one. They'll say, look what they're doing, and they'll start pointing out what they've been doing wrong. The But look at what they're doing tactic. Is John deflecting Jesus' rebuke? Why would John not want demons to be cast out? This person was able to do what the disciples earlier could not. The person knows it is by Jesus' name that demons are cast out. They recognize that Jesus has power and authority over the spiritual realm. This implies they trust in Jesus as it is his name they are calling on. They believe in Jesus' power and authority. That was not enough for John. The person needed to be one of them to follow with them. Jesus instructs John, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Anyone who casts out darkness in Jesus' name is part of the light. He should be welcomed, not opposed. He is on the right side of the battle against evil. He is a friend of Jesus. There ought to be no rivalry or competition in gospel ministry, rather unity in spreading the good news of Christ. Jesus is contradicting a spirit of exclusion. The gospel is one of inclusion. It is open to all. Jesus is for all who receive the gospel with a heart of repentance and place their trust in him. Out of his great life, Jesus has given his life for sinners so that we can be reconciled to the Father and received into his kingdom. Jesus is the Messiah, our Deliverer, our Savior. He is worthy of our trust. Let us turn from the darkness of the world, trust in Jesus, and walk in the light as his followers.